from Rays of the One Light, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. Do you need a guru? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Many people scoff at the idea of having a guru. True to the human nature, generally, they make a virtue of, see, of their scoffing. I am responsible for what I do, they announce responsible for my mistakes as well as for my victories. What would I ever learn if I had, if I handed over my development to someone else? To depend on another for guidance would be an act of spiritual cowardice. It would be understandable for someone gifted with some tribal ability, for instance with words, to insist on doing his crossword puzzles himself without letting anyone else help him. But supposing even in such a trivial matters, he had no such a gift, what virtue would there be in refusing to learn? For that matter, moreover, where do your gifts come from? There are not native ability. Still, crossword puzzles are hardly an important challenge. What if a person wanted to do something daring, to climb a cliff, for instance, but refused to study the art of mountain climbing? he would climb at the risk of his life. And how much more is risk than physical life in the greater adventure of the divine search, where the risk is not to salvation itself? Where is the sacrifice of seeking guidance? Even a mountain guide wouldn't presume to do one's climbing for one. His purpose would be only to help the neophyte climb safely. To have a wise guru is not a sign of weakness, but of plain common sense. All the saints have, were aware, as they are, of the hazards of the adventure, agreed to the importance of having a guide or guru. And these are the heroes speaking, not cowards or spiritual weaklings. Jesus emphasized the importance of having a teacher by asking John to baptize him. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 3, we read of his coming to John. Thus, Jesus said, to John, it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. In the Bhagavad Gita, the fourth chapter, Sri Krishna, Sri Krishna says, Open thyself to those who have obtained wisdom. They will be the teachers. Ask questions of them, both verbally and mentally. Serve them faithfully and with devotion. How is the, devo the devotee to recognize one who has obtained wisdom? The Bhagavad Gita gives us the inspiring description of the sage. But the sign is he known, being of equal grace to friends, chance comers, strangers, lovers, enemies, aliens, and kinsmen, loving all alike, evil or good. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om. Service. My name is Peter. This is my wife, Marga. Our pleasure to, say, to share our Sunday service with you. especially want to welcome all those who are with us as guests today for the yoga teacher training course or for the How to Be Happy All the Time course. What a great course. What else do you need? 
everybody's smiling, I hope, from that. And we also have the Living with Spirit program. Uh, young people, this is their second week, or end of their second week, they're here with us. So welcome to all of you. I'd like to continue with a reading from Whispers from Eternity, uh, Yogananda's book of prayer demands. Yogananda's words, prayer demands from whispers from eternity. Make us transparent that thy light may shine through us unimpeded. The sunbeams of thy love shine equally on all the members of thy cosmic family, whether prophet, hero, villain, tiny moth, or me. It is our own fault that we make ourselves opaque by our own mental and emotional dullness. Teach us to wipe away the dirt of error from the windows of our understanding. Our arms are weak for the task, owing to our long inner spiritual resistance. O oh, Master Cleanser, lend power to our efforts that we may wipe away every last spot that clings to our minds, obscuring our transparency and preventing free entry to thy light. O oh, make us fully clean again, invisible in our egos, because transmitting only visions of thy beauty, which lies within us. So the topic today is, do we need a guru? And it was uh, ironic, it was interesting. This week we had a satsang with uh, a number of people who have served or are serving in our work in India. And Jaya was sharing during that satsang that he was very happy to teach in India because people there didn't ask questions like, do you need a guru? And it wasn't, <laughs> it was something that was more part of the culture and understanding and it could get right to deeper teachings. But here in our teachings in the West, Swami has obviously included this topic here for a reason. And it's, uh, it's interesting, Yogananda starts his autobiography with a phrase that said the, the uh, characteristics of, of Indian culture have long been the search for eternal verities and the concomitant disciple-guru relationship. So it was something fundamental in India but it's something that got lost in the West along the way during Kali Yuga. Most of us come from a Judeo-Christian tradition, and we were, even if we don't espouse those traditions being brought up in, these, in this country, it permeates everything we think about here. And the whole idea of a spiritual guide kind of got lost in the dark ages of Kali Yuga and the church. The church wanted to put itself forward as an organization and not put any of the priests or anyone in a higher position even or even as a help to Jesus. So it was... It all sort of got lost and it was all about the institution and buying favors and strengthening the institution and buying salvation. And then the Protestants came along and they correctly tried to reform some of this, but they went even farther the wrong way. They decided that you don't need any authority at all and you can just gain what you need by reading, reading the scriptures from the Bible, that there's no need for a teacher or any kind of intervention. And then you transplant the Protestants over to America and we have yet another cultural overlay here in America of the rugged individualists, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, Andrew Jackson, riding forth onto the prairie, conquering, manifest destiny, relying on ourselves, the 
great captains of industry of taking the best from all traditions but leaving that you know hoary traditions behind and creating something new and wonderful which is america well that's all a great spirit and it's actually part of the spirit that drew yogananda to america he liked that spirit of you know do it now why wait use our willpower let's put it forth our energy and we can make this happen but we forgot something we forgot that we may not know exactly what it is we're trying to do or where we're trying to go especially when it comes to spiritual liberation of finding god so in this question the inquiring mind acquiring 21st century american mind wants to know a few things about why i need a guru and so I'm going to look at four salient questions in that vein today. The first one is, how come I can't get all the teachings I need from the internet? It's all there. The books are there. Everything is there. Why do I have to bother with coming to a retreat or paying teachers or doing any of that? Then a little bit farther, a little bit more evolution down the path, people will say, well, yeah, I can understand. Teachers are good. They can help me out. But I can learn from everybody. Teachers are everywhere. Why can't I just go to teachers, take what I need, go back and still judge and be myself. I'm in charge of my own destiny. And a little bit farther down the path, they come along farther and they say, okay, a guru. Yeah, I could see maybe there's a, a need for a guru, but I don't really understand this thing about taking initiation or pledging myself to a guru. I mean, I look at all the fundamentalist Christians who have praised their God and praised, given their life to Jesus and accepted Jesus as their savior and I don't really see them making all that much progress and you know just taking an initiation does that really do it is that what having a guru is all about and then the last question as you move even farther into understanding is well isn't it better if i had a guru who was actually in the body who could actually discipline me and teach me and be with me and i really need to find a guru who's in the body so we're going to look at those four questions today starting out with the one about how come i just can't get it all from a book and there's actually people in India, as I said, the traditions are there in India, but it's interesting as modernization comes into India, things are changing. The, the Mumbai stockbrokers are starting to pick up a slightly different attitude and different vibration. And they're saying, you know, people actually said this to Kriyananda and said, well, you know, I understand the need in the past for the Gurukula, the place where the disciple can go and to study with a guru because most people were illiterate. There weren't any books printed and there was no way to communicate and transportation was hard. So you had to go there and study with a guru. Well, that's all different today. I mean, I have my iPhone and I can get teachings right on my iPhone. You know, what do I need any of this guru stuff for? So uh, <laughs> it's interesting. I actually wanted to make sure that I wasn't making this up because I'm sort of steeped. I live in the Ananda village and we get into our own mindset here. And so I just want to make sure that when I'm characterizing the external world, uh, I do it accurately. So to check on this, I thought, well, okay, here at Ananda, our highest yogic technique is given by initiation, Kriya Yoga. There's a ceremony. It's given once a, a guru-disciple relationship has been established. There's an initiation through a qualified teacher. And there's a, a plea for or a, uh, a caveat of not sharing that technique with anyone except as given permission by a Kriya Yoga teacher. So that statements or those statements don't necessarily sit well with the American mind frame that we just uh, outlined. And I wanted to see how, if this was so. So I went onto the internet and in about less than two minutes, I found a complete description of a putative Kriya Yoga technique. I won't say if it was accurate or not because I didn't read it all. 
And not only was the whole Kriya Yoga technique outlined there on the internet, the person who had put it up started also had a paragraph there saying, and I'd like to talk about this need for a guru. I don't really think, I think that's all folklore. I think it's myth. I think these people who put that out there are just trying to get you to come and spend money. It's a whole marketing ploy. And really, in the spirit of America and free enterprise and scientific rationalism, we should put all these techniques out there freely. Everybody should just experiment with them, and they should be able to do what they want. And they'll, it's a fabulous technique. Why shouldn't we share that with everyone? That was right there on the website within two minutes of searching. So this mindset is out there, and it's actually one that we need to address and that we address in this reading. So there's also, one sees this especially, since the yoga teacher trainees are here, I'm going to talk about this one a little bit, especially in yoga and hatha yoga, you see this great spirit of American marketing of saying, you know, well, we have access to more information than we've ever had anywhere, and I'll take this from here and this from there and that from there, and why not combine it and make it better and we'll improve it and we'll create new kinds of yoga and pretty soon you have, you know, Tibetan, Dervish, Chi, hot yoga. And, you know, <laughs> you go, what is that? <laughs> and you ask somebody and they'll say, I made that one up. I didn't find that on the internet. <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll ask people and they'll, and they'll say, well, you know, let the consumer decide. This is a free enterprise. This is, you know, that's what made America great. We'll market this to them, and if it resonates with them, they can use it, they can take it, and, you know, it'll, the best will rise to the top. Well, therein lies the fallacy of this first question of why not just get it from a book? And the reason is because who's choosing it from the book? Well, who's choosing it is us. And here we are bound in ego consciousness. And what we're really trying to do in the spiritual path is get beyond ego consciousness. But if we're trapped in this ego and the ego is what's making these decisions, and the ego is what's doing the interpretation of these readings and these things on the internet that have been filtered through other people's egos that think that gurus are folklore, well, how far are we going to really get with these teachings? As Yogananda said, scriptures don't talk back. You can put whatever you want onto a scripture. You can read it, and it's amazing these filters we have up here, how we can read one thing and interpret it one way, and then if it's kind of inconvenient, we interpret it another way, and Next thing you know, you're, you're way over here in left field down the path, and you're not necessarily on a true a path of, of true teachings. And it's important to actually maybe engage with a teacher uh, when you're doing this kind of a thing. So that leads us to our second question, and that is, okay, maybe I need a teacher. But there's teachers everywhere. I can learn a huge amount from everybody, and I'm going to just look around and I'll find a teacher who resonates with me, who can tell me the things that I need to know, and, and then, you know, maybe I'll go to another teacher. That is actually an important part on the path, as is reading teachings, this exploration of reading books and then looking at teachers. It says in the Gita that initially people are, uh, the guru doesn't come initially until the disciple is ready, and initially the, the, guru, the disciple is taught through books and through teachers, lesser teachers, until it's time for the guru. So this is, I don't want to denigrate this. It's all an important step, but I also want to, we're talking about the need for a guru, so I want to point out some of the pitfalls in this attempt. And again, it comes right back down to who's doing the teaching. And the teacher can often be mired in ego consciousness. They can be in delusion. They can have power trips. They can like the fact that people come to them and treat them as something special, put them on a pedestal. 
And a lot of times there's an abuse in that. And that's actually probably what the person on the website who posted the Kriya Yoga was reacting to. He was probably reacting to a teacher who didn't necessarily live up to the ideals of a true teacher, of a egoless, clear channel to God. And it's, you can learn from very many, many people, but again, it's, there's a trap there because it's not, it's not necessarily going to take you all the way. Those teachers have their own things they're overcoming. It can help a lot along the way. But there's another problem with that, and that's if you approach a teacher with that understanding that, well, just like, you know, Peter just told me at Sunday service that you're probably not enlightened, and so I'm going to, you know, come to you with a, with a little bit of skepticism. Well, what happens? As soon as the ego kicks back in and the mind, that skepticism kicks back in, and you start doubting the teacher. And, you know, as soon as they contradict what your ego wants, or as soon as they try to correct you in a way that may be an incredibly good step for you, but there's that doubt. Is this really guidance, or is this guy in delusion? And, you know, I should follow my own inner guidance, and I'm the one who really knows, and, okay, time for a new teacher, and you move on. So it's, you don't even necessarily are able to draw everything that you need from those teachers. And it gets to the point of, what is it that we're really talking about here with a guru? What we're really talking about is something much more subtle than the dissemination of techniques, and the, than the giving of practices, of, or even of pointing out one's flaws. What we're really talking about with a guru is a channel from God. What we're really trying to do is to arrive at this infinite oneness, which is God. And we're trying to bring that down into our little ego consciousness, into our soul identified with the body. We're trying to get through these delusions, all these koshas, these shes that are there. And we're not necessarily going to do that by just through our own efforts. There's a story that Yogananda liked to tell in this vein, and that's the, uh, there was a man in, in India who was being bothered by demons. And there was this little devil, this little demon, this spirit, which kept interrupting his pujas and his worship ceremonies and would come and wreak havoc on his household and cause all kinds of problems. So this man went out to his local priest, and his priest said, okay, I have the perfect thing for you. We'll give you an incantation, and here's a special powder. And if you say this mantra over this special powder and then cast it on the demon, the demon will disappear. So he brought back his powder, and he sat there, and he said, ha-ha, now I'm going to get the demon. And he's waiting, and then the demon appears, and he quickly does his mantra over the powder, and he takes a pinch, and he throws it at the demon, and nothing happens. And the demon just sits there and laughs, and he said, ha huh, didn't you know, I know what you're doing. As soon as I saw the powder, I was in the powder. I was there, and you can't overcome that once I'm in there. That's the ego. Once the ego is in there, which it is, and firmly entrenched, it is very, very hard by our own self-effort. Even with the best techniques, it is very, very hard to overcome that because it's infected already with ego consciousness. That, that delusion is already embedded in who we are. So what we need, what the guru can do, what a true realized master can do is through a, a process of magnetism, through a process of channeling of grace, through a process of, of divine intuition can help us move away from that. So it's a, it's, uh, Yogananda and Kriyananda often use the illustration of a magnet. <clears throat> In our spine, there's all these little vortices, all these little... You know, when we say we're wrapped up in ourselves, that's really true. We've, we're wrapped up because we've got all this energy wrapping us up, thinking about desires and delusions and things that are keeping us bound. So what we need 
is to something that can start that energy moving in a different way. As it were, align the little magnets of all those little energies, align them all in the same direction to bring it up. And that grace of the guru, that true channel to God can do that. Through the power, the magnetism of the guru, it can work on a very, very subtle level of helping us with these techniques. I like to think an analogy that I found helpful is, uh, is one, if you think of yourself, I don't know if you've experienced this, uh, for me it's been out in the mountains, but it could be anywhere, that you're, suddenly a cloud comes down and you're inside the cloud. So you're there and there's nothing that you can see around you. It's just all white and wet and damp. And there you are and you're, you know, you suddenly lose all bearings of where you are. You can't see your surroundings. It's a really thick fog. That's kind of like us as devotees. We're in this thick fog and we don't really know where we're going or what we're doing. We're kind of stumbling around. Some of us just go, oh my God, this is hopeless. I can't find my way back down the mountain and they just go to sleep. Others of us sort of say, well, wait a minute, there must be something I can do. And then you whip out your book. So this is the first step. You whip out your little books and you start reading something and it says, okay, if I start going like this, you know, get the fog out of my way. Or if I start moving a little bit through a, a certain direction, I can get that fog. Or if I get my little flashlight, I can turn that on and I can find out where I'm going. And then another step, the next stage of getting out of it might be there's a rescuer or there's somebody else, another hiker is coming to find you. And you see this light off in the distance and this, this person comes towards you and all of a sudden there's somebody else there helping you. And that, that may be the lesser teacher. But still, you guys are still fighting through this fog and you can't really see where you're going. You know that up above, the sun is shining. There's a bright light up there. All you have to do is to break through this covering, this fog that's here, but you don't really know how to do that. And your guide may or may not know how to do that, and his flashlight may be power, more powerful than yours, but you're still stumbling around a little bit. And then all of a sudden, out in the distance, you see that there's this a glow, that there's something lighter out there. There's this very bright light, and you start moving towards that. And then, lo and behold, the clouds part. And here comes this shaft of sunlight down through those clouds and illuminating this spot. And if you can get into that sunlight, you can see where you are, you can see what you're doing, and the whole atmosphere changes completely. No longer you're in this damp, cold fog, you're in the light. That hole through the clouds is what the guru does. The guru is a channel. It opens up that maya, that delusion that's around us, and it gives us a channel that can come back through those clouds to open up to us. So think of that analogy of it's the guru and that, that sunbeam can dry you out. It can magnetize you. It can help you think better. It can help you show you where to go. And as long as you can stay attuned in that ray of light, in that sunbeam, you'll know where to go. And it's interesting that this question about the guru, as it says in the readings, it's something that all the masters emphasize. This isn't something that Kriyananda made up or Yogananda made up. And not only that, even the masters who are liberated masters. So the, the line of gurus we have here, Yogananda told us and Kriyananda taught us that these are avatars. They were fully liberated before they took birth. They didn't come back. They, came, they didn't come back for a reason to work out karma. They came back because they wanted to help us. So these are fully liberated masters taking birth here for a mission to help suffering mankind. But what did all those gurus do? They all went through this guru discipleship play. I mean, they did a divine play for us so that we could see how important this is. As it says in the readings, Jesus approached John the Baptist, 
who was his guru in another lifetime to reestablish that guru-disciple eternal relationship. And before he started his teachings, he went up to the River Jordan, he sought out John, and he said, it is becoming upon us to fulfill all righteousness, that you bless me. Even though John didn't want to do it, but he, he made a point of establishing that connection with a guru. If you look at our other masters of this line, Lahiri Mahashaya, as it says in the autobiography, he was an accountant in the British uh, Railway, the British Army accountant, and he was called to Raniket. And he was called there by his guru, Babaji. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story. It's one of those that you, if you're first getting into it, you have to sort of put some, put your skepticism on the shelf. But he was, a special palace was manifested for him, and he was blessed by his guru of past lives. And he didn't recognize him until the guru came back and give him, gave him that touch. Said, ah, oh, now I remember how long I have practiced yoga under your tutelage. How long have I sat in my asana seat here? And then Lahiri Mahashaya, he initiated Sri Yukteswar. Again, these were avatars. They didn't necessarily need to go through this, but the divine play was to show us how important this was. And what Yogananda recounts in the autobiography of how Yukteswar was guided by Lahiri Mahashaya and by Babaji. And then Yogananda, chapters of the book are devoted to the time with his guru. Yogananda was an avatar. Yogananda was a liberated soul long ago. But he went through this. He said, you know, when, before I came to my guru, my fancy, my desires were guided by whims and fancies. And that's, you know, we're back to the teachings there of the books. You know, if, you're, if your desires, if what you're trying to do are subconscious whims and fancies, you're not going to be able to judge very well. And Yogananda said, the only way I got past all my whims and fancies was through the, the blessings of my divine guru. And he spent years in his guru's ashram. And he said, you know, my guru was a, a fierce disciplinarian who hammered out all the kinks in my character. And there were very few who could take that discipline. But, you know, Yogananda throughout his life always gave deference, gave praise, gave homage, gave devotion back to his guru. And then Yogananda coming to us and emphasizing the need of following a guru, of following that avatar, because that divine grace, that divine grace is needed. It has to come in. So that leads us to our third question, and that's the one of, okay, now you convinced me I'm ready to take initiation or discipleship, but what does that really mean? And, you know, again, I see lots of people who, you know, receive, receive a certain Savior, and, okay, after that it's, you know, back to life as normal because I'm saved. Well, guess what? It doesn't quite work that way. The guru is there. That grace, that light coming through the clouds is there. But what do we have to do? If you're that poor devotee in the clouds who went to sleep, you're not going to receive any of that. And as Jesus said, to those that received him, gave he them the power to become the sons of God. We have to have a certain amount of receptivity, of openness. And all those things you learn from the books, from the Internet, from all the teachers, you have to put those into practice even after that relationship or, or to help establish that relationship with the guru. The initiation is just the first touch, the first contact, which is, can be incredibly important, but it's really a lifetime process of attuning oneself, of continuing to ask in all circumstances, guru, guide me, what should I do? Am I doing this right? Try to commune inwardly, to tune into that consciousness, that ray of light that's coming through the clouds, that consciousness, that grace. You have to attune yourself to that, and it takes incredible willpower. It takes incredible energy. It takes incredible focus. It takes a lifelong commitment to do that. And many people, 
would say to Yogananda or somebody said, you know, the grace, uh, you know, is your grace there? And Yogananda said, my grace is always there. Is your effort there? You know, the God is always there. The gurus are always there. That channel is always there. But we have to, in deep meditation, get rid of as many of those wrapped up vortices as we can. We have to leave behind those likes and dislikes. We have to get calm enough to even start to receive that magnetic pull. And once we start to receive that, then it can change us interior. It can change us how we, we need to change. That leads us to our fourth question. Said, okay, okay, initiation, books, all right, you're convincing me. Last one is though, wouldn't I be better off if I had a guru who was in the body? Because then, you know, it's a lot easier to talk to them, to get feedback. I can, you know, give myself completely to them. This, this thing's about, you know, contacting inwardly. That's really hard for me. I get lost. And I'm going to go look for a guru who's in the body. Well, if it's your karma to find a true guru who's in the body, that's wonderful. There aren't that many true gurus around. And if we look in the autobiography, for example, Yogananda mentioned, Kriyananda once, uh, he mentioned this in the path, he once asked Master, he said, of all those wonderful saints that you, you mentioned in the autobiography, how many were fully liberated? He said, Yogananda said, very few. He said, the, the masters of our path, and a couple, he also mentioned a couple of uh, disciples of Lahiri Mahasaya, Pranabhananda and Ramgopal Mozandar, but he didn't really mention very many others. He said, yeah, there are many saints, they've reached a high state of samadhi, but they're not really fully liberated. A fully liberated master, an avatar that comes back, is a very, very rare thing. It's a very, very difficult thing to find. And those avatars, those fully liberated masters, the ones who have, are just coming back to help us, bring a tremendous amount of power with them. And somebody asked Yogananda, said, Yogananda, sir, are you an avatar? And he said, well, he, he answered very quietly, said, it, it would take such a one to start a work of this importance. So basically, he said, yes, I am an avatar, and I, I do bring a tremendous amount of power here and tune into that power. And it's interesting, you know, we always say, oh, if only we could have been, had the good fortune like Kriyananda or others to have known master in the body. Well, Kriyananda said, it was really hard with Yogananda when he was in the body. The, the door of Mount Washington, his headquarters, was like a revolving door. People came, people went, people came, people went. He cited the example of one devotee in particular. He said, you know, this devotee took uh, discipleship initiation from master, to Kriya initiation many, many times from Master, you know, a direct blessing right from the guru in the body. But at the time, in the later years when Swami was there, this, this disciple left. And they would ask, many people were leaving at that time as it was getting near the end of the guru's mission. Sort of the energy withdraws a little bit at the end of a Master's mission, and people don't necessarily feel that outward connection to the personality, the smiles and the praise. and. You know, those who weren't really in tune with him inwardly, which is what you need to be with a true guru, many of them left. And they would ask him, so Master, how long will it take this disciple to come back to the path? Oh, you know, a lifetime. What about this lifetime? What about this disciple? Oh, two or three lifetimes. But in reference to the disciple who had taken initiation many, many times personally from Master, he said, what about this disciple? He said, he won't be back because he was never in. He never established that inward connection. And Yogananda talked to his disciples over and over and over again about the need for that inward connection. Be in tune. He didn't teach a lot outwardly. It was all tune into my consciousness in meditation, in deep devotion, in intuition, draw on my teachings that way. And that power is still there. And uh, Kriyananda asked Yogananda, said, will you still be near us when we are 
when, we're, when you left the body, said, to those who think me near, I will be near. So that power, that ray of light, that shaft through the clouds is still there, and that power is still there. And it's working through disciples who have been several generations later. It's working straight through the guru. It can be tuned into directly. That power can be brought down into our lives directly. You just have to, you have to commune with it. It isn't a question of whether there's a body there or not. It helps to be with other devotees, to be in that line of disciples who are helping transmit that master's power. But that master's power is still there, and it's going to last for centuries and centuries. And it's uh, probably, uh, you know, again, there's many different teachers, there's many different paths, but just be aware of, of what it is you're tuning into and what's the power behind that, because that, that fundamentally is what's going to change us. It is what's going to lead us to liberation, is that that sense of focus, that sense of divine power, that grace that we can tune into. I'd like to close just by putting a, a personal touch on this story. And all those questions that were asked, that was I asked all those at various times in the path and went through different books and different teachers. And you know, I came to Ananda at one point. I had been studying in an ashram with another, uh, with a, a master in the body who uh, didn't necessarily put him out as a guru, himself out as a guru, but he was treated that way in the ashram, and you know it was it was difficult for me, and it was sort of puzzling. And well, how do I relate to this person, and what is this? And then, by good fortune, my wife and I came up to Ananda, and we took a tour here, and it felt right, and we started getting connected with Ananda, and we started at this point really understanding the clarity of the teachings that Kriyananda has brought, really understanding what is it, what is a guru? What is this relationship with a disciple and a guru? But it was still something I had a number of questions on. And we had the great fortune and the audacity to uh, get ourselves onto a pilgrimage. Now, we didn't pay to go on the pilgrimage. We were already in India. And we happened to have started connecting with Durga and Vidura and Asha and David here. And, and we asked them, so, well, we're going to be in India. Can we join you on the pilgrimage some places? And he sort of said, well, okay. They were, they were fortunate enough. We were fortunate enough that they didn't say, well, you know, most of these people are paying thousands of dollars, but yeah, you can come along anyway. So we did manage to find them in different places, and we followed them around India. And by the time we had gotten to Calcutta, which was toward the end of the trip, um, they figured out that it, we had had enough staying power, we were sincere enough that they actually, you know, said, okay, just come. They invited us along. So they invited us over to Master's house where Yogananda had his meditation room. And we had a very, very wonderful satsang there with Hare Krishna Ghosh, uh, the, the nephew of Yogananda. And it was just blissful and wonderful. And then Vidura said, well, tomorrow we're going to have a discipleship initiation. You could join us if you'd like. And that was when I went, oh, discipleship. Wait a minute. I don't know if I'm ready for that. You know, what does that mean? And so, but meditating in Yogananda's meditation room, I mean, it took a pretty strong power to break through my vortices, but sitting in his meditation room, I said, okay, Yogananda, are you my guru? Are you my guru? How do I know? I need to know before I do this. And I received a thought back, which I don't know if it was Yogananda's or what, but it said, you'll know when you see my picture. So we left the house and we went back to Calcutta. We were staying at the YMCA and the tour was staying at the Oberoi. And (laughs) 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 we... uh, and I started looking around because I wanted to be a disciple. I said, okay, I'm going to look for master's picture. I mean, we even went out to, you know, one of the bazaars, one of the bookstores. I'm, all right, I'm going to find an autobiography, and then I'll see his picture, and then I'll know. 
And so I was looking and I never, I didn't find anything. There were no autobiographies. There were no pictures. I mean, this is, you know, central downtown Calcutta. It's not, you know, the heart of YSS in India or anything. So, you know, I said, and we prayed and we meditated and we just said, okay, well, maybe that wasn't true guidance. And, you know, we like to take discipleship. We, we both came to that conclusion. So we hiked from the YMCA over to the Oberoi. And by this point, there were a number of people who were sick on the tour. And they just said, well, you know, instead of taking a taxi, why don't you just get on the bus? It's okay. Come on the bus. So we were meeting the bus in front of the Oberoi. And the Oberoi is a five-star hotel. And so behind the facade, it's all calm and clean and sort of Western. And in front of the Oberoi facade, there's a, there's a uh, pergola there and there's a walkway. And it's India. I mean, there's, it's chaos going on out there. And there's people selling things and there's food and there's posters and there's trinkets and there's, there's everything. And there's booksellers who are out there. But this is, you know, again, this is not the headquarters of YSS in India or anything. It's not what he says. So as I'm walking to the bus, I just happen to look over and in this stack of books of a used bookseller, upside down is the copy of the book Mejda. And Mejda, if you don't know what that is, that was a book that was written by Sanandalal Ghosh, Yogananda's brother. And he told about his, um, his experiences with his guru. And on the front of that book is a picture of Yogananda when he was a young lad, when he was meditating in his meditation room that I had just been in. So I looked at this book, and I didn't even know the book. And I just, you know, I had recognized it. I think I had seen somebody else on the tour had it. And I just, I went to it, and I picked it up, and I just, Marga, Marga, is that Yogananda? Is that Yogananda? Is that Yogananda? And Marga said, yes, that's Yogananda. And I just, you know, I just prayed and thanked God. It was, a, it was an incredible moment. But, you know, my reaching out to the guru, the guru came and answered when, when I needed that. And if we establish that relationship with the guru, if we cling to the guru, if you look at the guru as your raft across the ocean of delusion, in this lifetime, in all lifetimes, once that relationship is there, the guru said, they will see you through to liberation, and that's our destiny.